Welcome to the Mastering the Mind podcast, which is an approved basis SEPA endorsed resource. Today we welcome Tom Mitchell to the podcast. Tom is an English and Team GB Rugby Sevens player and is currently both teams' captain. Tom led Great Britain to an Olympic silver medal at the Rio 2016 Olympics, a bronze at the Commonwealth Games in Australia and a silver at the World Cup Sevens in San Francisco. Tom was also one of the four nominees for the 2014 World Rugby Sevens Players of the Year Award. So let's welcome Tom to the podcast. Hello, hello. How you doing? Yeah, doing bad. good, doing good. How about yourself? Yeah, good, thank you. All right. I, we've uh, had an interesting week. Um, it's just been, we've been moving out of our house um, and in with the mother-in-law. Uh, so, and I'm well, it's, well, we're very lucky that we've got, so there's a bit of upheaval going on, basically, long story short, but we've, yeah, so this month, we're just living with my mother-in-law in between times. But I'm also, I'm on crutches at the moment, so yeah. it, these are a permanent prop, um, <laughs> which means, yeah, I have to get them in at all times just to make sure that I garner some sympathy of people. <laughs> good idea, um, good idea. Yeah, uh, so yeah, so I've been absolutely useless basically in terms of like moving stuff and sorting because I can't, can't do anything. So, yeah, it's been an interesting week because I also can't really help look after our little boy at the moment. Yeah. So my wife, bless her, is um, just doing it all. I mean, she normally does most of it anyway, but it, she's doing even more at the moment. So, Oh, well, you'll have to make up for it when you're, uh, when you're not injured. <laughs> I know, I know, big time, yeah. All right, well, um, a great place... Oh, no, I'm just trying to rearrange my views here. I've got that laundry basket. I've just done <laughs> <laughs> the same. I, I saw a drink in my background. And I was like, oh. <laughs> Mine's so messy. I need to fix it. I'm sorry, guys. This isn't my room. This is my sister's room. So I've tried to make it a bit more me. But <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering what, what books you strategically placed in the background. <laughs> yeah. Make yourself look smart. Yeah, no. Nah, it. It's all my sister's books. Don't worry. <laughs> I, do, I rarely read. I rarely read. <laughs> not not something to, to be proud of uh, yeah okay so no, I went through most of my degree I did English and philosophy degree as well yeah um, so like reading heavy you think but um, I definitely didn't do as much as I should have done and I'd love to go back and actually do my degree again but do all the reading because I think I'd really enjoy it but hey yeah. you prioritise don't you things get in the way so yeah. much okay so um uh, normally where we start podcasts uh, and for the listeners to get to know you is talk us through your journey to date. So if I was to ask you, who is Tom Mitchell? If you could talk us through, you know, growing up to where you are now, what would that journey look like? Nice. Well, um, I grew up in Sussex in the south of England. Um, parents, uh, Alan and Sue, mum and dad, and, and her and our oldest sister as well, who still kind of looks after me to this day. Um, went to went to school as, as normal, was very lucky. I went to a, a good secondary school that my dad was teaching at, at the time, um, which kind of gave me loads of opportunities, kind of was doing sport every day of the week, um, after school stuff, you know, most days of the week, um, which is brilliant. And then moved on from after school, went to university, went to University of Bristol uh, to study English and philosophy, and um, which was a brilliant three years. And then off the back of that, I went to Oxford to do a postgrad for a year and studied historical studies there. Um, and, and that was around the time where rugby started to get a bit more serious for me as well. So 
um, I it's kind of towards my third year in Bristol doing my undergrad and was playing a bit of representative stuff for England students. Um, and then off the back of playing the varsity match with Oxford, um, I got invited to, to play on the World Series with England Sevens um, in 2012. And then uh, kind of fast forward through my career, I suppose, to this point. But um, yeah, lo loads of ups and downs with some amazing moments and, and a career kind of, well, be coming up for 10 years in January um of doing professional rugby which is something i dreamt about when i was younger um and i guess has become a reality for me which is pretty cool mm. during that period did you find it hard to kind of balance your studies with rugby because obviously it was an important moment for your career was it challenging or did you find that it was okay for you yeah it's a really good question because actually i, I often look back and think i was really fortunate that rugby and the professional side of it came quite late for me because um, there's some guys and, and particularly in other sports actually like football where people get picked up very young um, and then it, I think it's a real challenge to try and manage things and balance things I guess I was kind of lucky that rugby was just a sort of hobby and, and I only you know I only had a sniff of the professional game when I was kind of sort of 19, 20, 21 um, and by then I was probably a bit more equipped to manage things um, but actually I, I think the opportunity to do studies while I was breaking into the professional game was really valuable. Um, it became, it, it meant that I was able to hold on to some perspective because I had a life outside of rugby that I had to attend to because I, you know, signed on to the course and I wanted to finish and um, all the rest of it. So I think by having another focus, it kind of took the heat out of the, the professional rugby experience or at least stepping into the fire that is professional sport because I potentially reflect on it. I could have been very overwhelmed by the experience and, you know, as a young person going into professional sport must be incredibly daunting if you don't have anything else. I mean, it was daunting anyway, but, uh, you know, I was fortunate to have something else. And I think there's something in that, actually, as you go through your career as a sports person, that you benefit from having focuses outside of it. I mean, you do hear people talk about it quite a lot now, but actually, and probably maybe we're worse in rugby than some other sports. There's this expectation, or there's this little bit of a uh, unsaid thing that if you're doing other stuff maybe there's a bit of focus or a bit of energy that you're not putting into the team and your sport and like this is your thing this is your main thing so you should focus everything on it um and i get to get that argument but in my experience actually you keep yourself much more fresh by having other interests there's a real risk if you dedicate yourself to one thing and one thing only whether that's sport or anything else to be honest i think it can become very heavy and particularly when it's not going well you've got nowhere nowhere else to turn to for something and for alternative satisfaction i guess yeah 100% i've done a lot of work during my msc like what what you're saying is spot on because i do a lot of work around um released academy footballers um so like me growing up seeing my friends who um who used to play for leicester leicester city football club in their academy um, you know, and, and watching them drop out, you know, it's really sad to see it and watching them, they're not really focused on their education and they haven't really got a backup plan. Um, so the fact that you felt that, you know, having two things and a wider identity helped you is really is super interesting and sort of backs up a lot of the literature that is within sports psychology and transitions. So thanks for sharing that. Um, how did you fall in love with, uh, with, with the sport of uh, rugby and rugby sevens as well? Like, for our listeners, I'm sure a lot of our listeners don't know the difference between Rugby Sevens and Rugby Union. So, so give us an overview of uh, the differences. 
Yeah, so I'll give you the differences first up. Um, very simply, rugby sevens and rugby fifteens are the same. They're the, the rules are the same. It'll be called laws, but they're the same. But the difference is there's only seven players on the pitch in sevens per team, and fifteen aside is the one that the type of rugby that is more popular over here. Um, and the games in sevens are only fourteen minutes long, so you have seven minute halves. But you play in a tournament format, so you normally play three games in a day, um, and then you play two days. So you play your group games on one day and then you play the knockouts, quarter semis final, hopefully, on day two. Um, and and the, we don't play, so with sevens, professional sevens is only international as well. So there's no like domestic league at the moment. We only, if you want to play professionally in sevens, you have to play for your country. Um, and we play on something called the World Series, which is basically a sort of traveling circus that goes to 10 different venues around the world. Um, and it's a bit like the Formula One. You get points for where you place. Um, it's not quite as glamorous as the Formula One, but uh, a similar format. Um, and and at the end, there's, there's a winner. Um, and the biggest kind of tournament, I guess, on the sevens calendar is the Olympics. So sevens is an Olympic sport, whereas rugby 15s, the one that people are familiar with, isn't. Um, and that's kind of a big, been a big shift for the sport. Uh, I first got into it when I was probably about, I think it was about eight years old, um, and I was I love football. Um, I mean, I love doing all sports, but football's probably the main one, like a lot of kids in this country. Um, I was playing in, in the garden, actually, with my dad, and he was more of a rugby player when he was younger, um, and has sort of always been more interested in rugby. Anyway, we were messing around, and I always wanted to like dive around and dive on the floor and stuff, and he was like, oh, I think you'd like rugby. And now I look back, he was obviously just trying to kind of elbow me into a game that he probably yeah, wanted yeah. to see me play. Um, but then I just went out to the local rugby club and played from, uh, from then on. And then growing up through school, played for my school and played at uni. But like most guys and girls in this country, you do 15s and then sevens is kind of on the side. And it's not something that you necessarily think is going to be a career. Um, and then um, it kind of came. I'd always loved it, though, because I love the space. There's a lot more running in sevens. It's kind of a little bit more freedom. Um it kind of demands something a little bit different from you as well, like psychologically, which we can go into. Um, and then, yeah, I, I was just sort of out of the blue when I was at uni, I got a call from the coach at the time, just inviting me to go and train with the squad. And there was like one of those mind blowing moments. Um, I really had to kind of check myself. It was, I, it was actually a voicemail that he left me and I'd never spoken to the guy previously. So I was like, this is definitely just one of my mates winding me up on a voicemail. Um, but no, fortunately it was real. And I went along and, and trained and managed to hold my own and then uh, progress from there. It's interesting that um, to be a rugby sevens player, you have to play for your country. And obviously the squad's probably, I, don't, I can't imagine how big it is, but seven players on the pitch and then obviously subs as well. There can't be that many players. So in terms of the domestic league, is that something that the rugby sevens is pushing for? Yeah, mate, it's, it's a great point. It's been talked about for years. Um, yeah. And it's actually a really interesting time for the sevens as a sport at the moment because it was it made its debut in the olympics in 2016 we obviously just came off the back of another olympic games this summer in tokyo and it's had these big big moments been really successful in the eyes of the olympic kind of circles it's a it's a great sport and it'll be in for a long time to come but it hasn't really uh, flourished in, ter in terms of the commercial side of the game and, and the rest of it so they're having a big reshuffle at the moment big rethink about how to structure the the year, the calendar, and, and everything that goes with it. 
So it is going to change quite a lot. Um, and I'd hope that part of that might be a some sort of, you know, the, the thing that's often talked about is like um, with cricket, you know, the IPL that they started in cricket. Yeah. Um, that model is something that's obviously been very successful financially for the sport and, and for players. Um, and that is something that's been banded around with sevens that they, they try and formulate something similar. Um, but we'll, we'll see. I mean, it's a really interesting one, though, for players, because obviously if you dedicate your career to playing sevens, it's not like you can go and sign for another club if it doesn't work out for you, you know, because if I, you know, for example, if I don't get picked for England, I can't go and play for France. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm stuck then. Um, and obviously, and what you'll see is players that don't make it will then go and play 15s because there's no other option. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a pretty tough, in some ways, a, like a high pressure scenario to be in because there is no plan B with sevens. Mm. You know, if you, if sevens is what you want to do, then you've, you've got to make it into the, that one team. And there's only 12 players in a squad for each tournament. So normally the, the wider squad is about 20 or so players. Um, so it's not many, not many spots available. Mm. Yeah. In terms of the like body composition for rugby sevens, obviously um, in rugby 15s, the body compositions vary quite drastically. Um, what is it like in rugby sevens? Uh, is everyone quite similar, a similar build, or do you have more stocky players? You know, um, There's probably a smaller range in terms of the physiology of players um, because largely... Some of the some of the types, the body types you get in 15s uh, don't suit themselves to a faster game. We the demands in sevens, I guess, if I was going to prioritise, are probably speed and fitness. So you have to be able to run at high speed and change direction at high speed, really, and you have to be able to maintain that for relatively long periods of time. Um, even though game's only 14 minutes, there's a lot of running goes on in that time. So we play on the same size pitch for anyone who hasn't seen it. Um, so yeah, you don't get any of the really, really big heavy guys that you see in 15s, the kind of front row types, you don't really get that. Um, but actually sevens isn't really a game for small players either. I mean, you do get smaller guys because obviously it can suit with more space. If you're smaller and you're a bit kind of got jinky feet and you can beat players, then that's useful. But you actually get some really big guys as well. Um, the freakish thing is when those big guys can also shift um and that's, that becomes a real problem when you're defending those guys um so you, you do get a bit of a range it, it, the something that's kind of characteristic of the game of sevens is the the physical demands of it though because you do have to be this very all-round type athlete you have to be able to run fast change direction um be fit like cardiovascularly um and really interesting you have to be very durable because you're playing m multiple games across the weekend and then normally the tournaments are paired up. So you play one weekend and then play the following weekend. So if you're someone that breaks easily or, you know, as much of a mental thing, a physical thing, you have to be able to back up. And I think that's a really interesting element of the sport that you don't see in a lot of other sports. Mm. Yeah, I was going to ask actually, like mentally, what are the kind of differences between 15s and 7s? Like, are there major differences or do you think it's pretty similar? I guess the most obvious thing with 7s, because it's a tournament format, um, you, you've got these big ups and downs. So for a game of 15s, it's, it's 80 minutes, you turn up, you sort of, and yes, there, there will be ebbs and flows in a game, but essentially you try and focus across the 80 minutes. Um, whereas in sevens, you, you have a 14-minute game, win or lose, your emotions are likely to be either sky high or, you know, wanting to be rock bottom. 
but then you've got maybe three hours to turn it around before the next one. And there's a huge emphasis on being able to be mentally switched on for that next game. Um, so that side of it is probably the most obvious. The other one probably is how sevens exposes you as a player. Um, because there's that much more space on the pitch, you're kind of very vulnerable, like both in a, like you feel that, you feel that space. You sometimes got 20 metres till the next guy on your team. Um, particularly when you're defending, you can feel pretty isolated out there. Um, so I think in, in that respect, you know, there's very, uh, very rarely do you have someone to mop up your mess if you, if you make a mistake. Yeah. Um, and, and because the games are so, because it's only 14 minutes, often the games are very close. So a mistake can, you know, cost you. Um, equally, you know, you can do one thing and it can win you the game. But that balance means that the emotions are quite extreme. Um, and I think that's the been that probably be my one reflection on terms of the psychological demands of it. Hundred mm, yeah. percent, I could definitely see that. You know, going one on one against a guy, you basically got to be able to deal with your guy. If not, you're in big, big trouble. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> and being switched on as well. That that point it, that kind of reminds me of like back in the day when I used to do football tournaments. Like throughout the day, we'd have matches, and like my body would like switch off for uh, like an hour, and like we'd have to get back on, you know, and I'd find it really hard to really get back into the swing of things. I don't know if you had that all when you were, when you were. Um, mine was like, I can, I can find, like, I, I relate to when we play five-a-sided, you know, if you're not, if you don't track your man, like, oh, yeah. he's gone and he's in behind and he scores. Obviously, it's nowhere near on the same level, but uh, definitely. It's exactly the same though. Like, yeah. it, like, it happens, you see it all the time in games though, talking like literally that scenario where, Someone will switch off it during the game for a split second. And it's not through, you know, lack of effort in that moment. It's just like a sort of, you know, the concentration just fades and they just lose the, the guy they're tracking, whatever it is, for a split second. And that's it. Just, the opposition has scored a try. Um, and it can be really brutal in that respect. But yeah, the, the, the switch on, switch off thing, we talked about a lot when with our team because um, the switching off bit is, is just as much of a skill as the switching on. Um, and I think that's something that I definitely got better at as I got older because the ability to park whatever's happened previously and then actually enjoy that rest time. Um, and it, it makes a huge difference by the time you get to game six, you know, and hopefully that's a final and you're playing for the trophy. Um, you don't want to be carrying, you know, 48 hours worth of mental fatigue at that point. Um, you want to have kind of switched on, be right up here, focus, focus. 14 minutes and then as quickly as you can come back down here where you your mind's very quiet as you know in the same way that you want to put your feet up and keep your body very still if you can kind of conserve energy that way you want to be doing the same thing with your mind um and there are all sorts of other challenges that come with it like, like you say when you've played and then you've got to get yourself up for the next game like the number of times i've peeled myself off you know the changing room floor to be like <laughs> right it's time to get ready for the next game and then your body is just like, oh, I don't want to do this again. And, it, and it's literally telling you, like, no, we're not going again here because, you know, you might have picked up a little bump or bruises, you're stiffening up. Um, and you've just got, it's about finding your strategies and finding the ways to get through that period. Um, one of my favorite ones was like, just get the music on and just start to have a little bit of a, start to have a little bit of a bop. As long as it's something decent, fences on the, <laughs> it depends on the Bluetooth, but. Yeah, a little bit of a dance. There's nothing like gets a bit of get a bit of blood flowing and a bit of energy going, like a bit of uh, bit of a light jig, and then uh, and then the, the sort of more serious warm up can start after that. 
What, what songs are you uh, bumping to? Mate, a big one for me in the tournaments recent years has just been, I'm, I'm quite into reggae anyway, so I've got a few playlists yeah. that I just whack on and obviously there's a nice beat that you can, that can kind of ease you back into, uh, you know, to the land of the living once you've been, after you've been resting and, um, and it's quite, I don't know, it just makes me feel good. Yeah, fair mm. enough. And then as it ramps up towards the game, if I had the choice, I actually never do, like normally it's someone who will do the music for the team, we'll have it on a big speaker. I never do that. I don't like, that's too much. Res- I don't mind, you know, responsibility <laughs> yeah, yeah. of kicking a goal or anything in the game, but I don't want the responsibility of doing the music. So, yeah. um, but if I have my choice, you know, closer to game time, it would probably be some sort of jungle or drum or bass or something like that. Yeah. You talk about quickly switching off, like after games, would like maybe not talking about what happened, like let's say you have a bad result or you guys play badly as a team, do you almost not talk about it when you go back in changing rooms or is it important for you to have that reflection moment as quickly as possible and then move on like how do you go about that yeah it's, i guess it's probably the the opposite of not talking about it i think generally engaging with it is is really important um because there's a there's a tactical thing in that as well like you need to know you need to break down the game previously because you, you might have to take learnings from that game and take them into whatever comes next right so uh, you know, if there are fixes to be made tactically, you've got three hours to, to understand that, process it, and then employ it in the next game if needed. Um, but also, I think from an emotional point of view, in order to kind of bring yourself down, um, it's really important to probably like offload and, and kind of dump if you need to. Mm. Um, and different, I mean, the demands for that vary from player to player. You see, everyone kind of handles it differently. But I think trying to um, disregard whatever emotions you've you've come off the field with is probably quite a dangerous way to go because they're going to store somewhere, and the chances are the time they'll come out is in the middle of the next game or, or when it's close in the you know towards the end of the next match. So um, we we often used to put sort of time limits on it, um, or have you know we'd have the initial time off the field was by yourself, um, and you kind of do what you need to do, get a shower, and then we'd have like right we're going to come together as a team in 20 minutes. And that would be the point at which you'd kind of try and um, just consolidate your own emotions and be able to kind of focus in on whatever team conversation was. Now, in reality, like if you've just, whatever it is, well, go to the Olympics, like you lose a semi-final in the Olympic Games, you know, you miss now on the final, the chance to win a gold, like, you you write down like it's you're not turning that around in 20 minutes mm. um if well most humans can't anyway yeah. so uh the chart the reality is and i've done it a lot you do carry the emotion into that rest period um and again it's it's a skill it's a skill that you learn so that it just gets quicker and quicker each time um but i've seen it in the, in the flip side as well like you know if you win the semi-final and you got a final in three in three hours or whatever you don't want to be too buzzing because you're just wasting that energy. So sometimes, you know, as, and often as captain, I had to try and just nudge the boys in a, in a certain direction. And you don't, and it's, sometimes it's just individuals. Sometimes it's the whole group. Like, uh, sorry, I don't know if you can hear my little boy crying in the background. But if that's coming through on the no, mic, then sorry it, about that. It's very faint. If you need to see it to him, that's fine. Yeah. It's a, well, I, I can't, as I say, I can't oh. even walk around with him at the moment. So, yeah. Um, but we can edit this out if uh, needs to be. <laughs> if you need to do something, that's fine. <laughs> no, it's all good. I think it's all good. Um, 
uh where was i yeah so equally if you like you just have to just could kind of steer the boys uh around where they need to go or where you know you make a judgment call on it so um sometimes it's a little like come on let's just like you know settle down a little bit here or some people need a little air pumping back into the tires um some people just need you know someone to listen to them vent and be frustrated and angry um you know and you have to kind of entertain all those emotions you have to allow for individuality in terms of the way people react i think um that was always my approach anyway i think that's the right way to go um but it's it, the strategies thing is something we talk about a lot um and you see people trying all sorts but music's always a, always one for quite a popular one but stuff like some guys would put their hands in um in the ice baths because we use ice baths there's a argument to say there's a physiological benefit as well but some guys used to put their hands in it for 30 seconds and that was their kind of way of just bringing themselves back down and um a lot of guys use the shower some breathing techniques um things like that just to give themselves a chance of resetting that's, that's re really interesting uh, a technique that i've not really heard of so if it works, it works. Um, well, it. I don't think it necessarily matters what it is. To no, be honest, yeah, you know, it's just almost like a trigger. Yeah, yeah, big time. I mean, I think cold and like it probably does have a power beyond just you know be, being anything random. I, I I like the cold exposure generally. Like I try and do it quite a lot anyway because I think it's there is a physiological side. I think it helps with you getting you back in your parasympathetic nervous system and things like that, which is obviously exactly what you want to do uh after a game if you're going to recover mm. okay so a common theme obviously during this podcast has been switching on and off um we spoke about it really in a game-to-game -game sense but what about uh time between competitions so obviously being a rugby sevens player you gotta keep yourself in good nick really talk about the endurance the fitness um what's like a weekly daily routine for a rugby sevens player yeah great question um so the, the, for people who don't know because we um the season spans like seven months or so uh from kind of start to finish and the tournaments are paired up so that means between the pairs of tournaments you've got three four maybe five weeks on a bigger gap where you've your training block so that's really time you spend at home with your team um it's really important that you make the most of that train block because obviously everyone else has gone back to their bases and they're improving you need to make sure that your improvement rate is steeper than theirs and that was always the aim you know um and and they're also obviously the bigger breaks certainly opportunities to try and um you know get fitter stronger and all the rest of it as well um so there was a really interesting thing about managing that because when you come back off a tournament and you've probably been away for two and a half weeks or so sometimes three weeks with the same group of people like you you are pretty fatigued off the back of that i mean whilst the the trips are awesome um, and we have a great time and it's amazing being away with, you know, a group of lads that you kind of relate to, you care about and you have a good laugh with. Um, but you spend two, three weeks away with anyone and you're a little bit like, oh, I need a break from this. Um, so we always had at least like two days, sometimes longer when we came back um, just to kind of get away um, and just there was no training, no nothing um and then come we'd normally come back in for some very light days so just like to get moving again but no real kind of mental focus or anything that we had to really switch on for um but it's a real balance because you didn't then you don't want to waste time as such so it's kind of a, i think a lot of it is like the courage that the coaches have because essentially we 
you know, we give our feedback and we have input as players, but you're kind of listening to the SNC coaches to an extent, to a large extent, because um, you don't want to decondition in that time as well. So there's yeah. a bit of you that's as a competitive athlete, you're like, I think I need the rest, but I also don't want to, you know, fall off the pace here. And this is an opportunity I can get better. So I want to go back to training. And there's this little bit of give and take. And um, I think it, it's, a, it's a really interesting nuance of where you can um, get it right or wrong as a player. You know, the push and pull of training is a really tricky thing to do because you're asking young athletes, because generally athletes are pretty young, uh, so you're asking young people to know their bodies and know themselves mentally to an extent that they can manage that. And it's really hard to do that when you've got all these external triggers like, you know, I want to keep my place in the team or, you know, uh, I'm feeling really tired. Um, the coach is thinking this about me. You're going to think I'm lazy if I don't want to train and all the rest of it. Um, it's very difficult to shift those thoughts and be objective about where you're at. So you do lean on the guidance of the coaches. But um, but then, so after we have a sort of relatively chilled week upon return, then we're going to a normal week, basically. Mondays would always hit off with speed. So we do like a big speed session first thing because that's when you're fresh and you can get the most out of your yeah. speed work. And then we do, the days are generally split between S&C and um and rugby so you do your gym in the morning and rugby in the afternoon or vice versa and then in and around that you uh build in team meetings like physio treatment things like that um and any additional work um that we've got to do and we used to kind of split the weeks you do monday tuesday would be pretty hard wednesday would be like a recovery day or like extra stuff and then thursday friday go hard again and then saturday sunday off yeah it sounds like a full-time job or obviously it is but it's, it's a lot of hard work and uh, I was curious to know like let's say when you go back home how can how do you kind of disconnect from rugby you know because obviously it's important is, tell us how you do it what are your struggles yeah with? yeah it's really important because you know as I say you've been away uh, with the same people and much as you try and switch off when you're away as well actually like if you have an afternoon off you know, some players fall into the trap of, oh, I've got an afternoon off, I'm going to do some analysis, I'm going to watch some opposition, you know, footage and stuff, which is great. You think, oh, great, they're learning and doing all the right things, but actually it's still, you're on and you only, everyone's only got a certain um, bandwidth for this stuff, right? So you do need to make sure you're not filling that up before it's actually time to perform. Um, equally, yeah, when you get home from the trips, you need to kind of, uh, give that bandwidth a bit of a rest I think um, so I used to I mean the, the my favorite breaks used to be when I actually can't, would come back and and like go somewhere like do a little city break or something like a couple of nights away because then you feel like you've really mentally got away from it and switched off um, if I'm being totally honest in the earlier days of my career and I was living in London with uh, like four or five other mates in a house and they weren't professional sports people so there was a lot of like uh, switch off that probably wasn't very healthy to be honest it was like right I get back on the Tuesday from from the tournament um, you know there were there were some weeks where I'd go out Wednesday Thursday Friday on the trot because we were like 20 something years old and everyone was living in London for the first time and it was absolute buzzing um, and in some ways that was like you know I wasn't thinking about being an athlete in those moments because I wasn't behaving like an athlete yeah. um, so in that sense, I was switching off. But then uh, on the flip side, I was pro almost certainly carrying that into my week's training when I went back. Um, it's, not, it's not a way of behaving that I'd necessarily recommend. 
Um, I think if you can find healthier switch off strategies, which I've done as I've got older, because now like physically, I wouldn't be able to go, go out on the smash for three nights <laughs> yeah, on the yeah. trot and then turn up and be able to train the following week. Like that just you know, doesn't happen. So um, now, you know, it's more about spending time with the family. Um, you know, if I can do simple things, like get down to the coast, if I can go swimming in the sea, even if it's winter, things like that really help me just feel like rejuvenated and, and switching off. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's, that's really, really interesting to hear that. Um, so rugby sevens is quite a high injury risk sport, would you say? You would agree? How do yeah, you, I can yeah, I can vouch for that. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and you obviously experienced quite quite some injuries yourself. So, how do you keep pushing through these setbacks? Because it feels like to me, it, as a player, you get injured quite frequently. So, how do you kind of sustain? How do you kind of bounce back all the time? It's quite different to other sports, I'd say. Maybe f- less compared to football. Football players don't get as injured maybe as rugby seven. So. Yeah, it's in, it's really interesting as well because there's a um, I guess there's, there's two things I'll probably say here. The first thing is you've got to come back from injury and then put yourself back into an incredibly physical arena. So, uh, and the way our you know you guys know more about this than me probably, but the way our brains are wired, obviously we you know they're designed to protect us. So if something hurts us, our brains tell us don't do that shit again, don't do that again, because you're gonna get hurt again. So invariably, you know, you have this, your brain pattern matches the rugby field again. Well, hang on, last time you were on this, this didn't end well for you. And so you do have to manage that. And actually, I think it's probably, in my experience, I probably needed a bit more help in that, in that side of things initially. Um, I think I overcame probably some of that fear through just the desire to want to be competitive. So I sort of met it with, with just wanting to push on, be the best, and all, all the same things that probably motivate me um before injury um but there was it is certainly a tough place to be as well from another p- perspective because you when you're injured you're not only are being deprived of something you enjoy doing like people you know i'm lucky i love rugby and i got to do it as a sport i got to do it as a job um and so when you're injured you, you can't do something you love doing but you're also being divorced from the rest of the group because generally you do your rehab like away from the group and you'll you'll see the guys but you're not out of training, you're not going on the trips, you know, playing in the tournaments and having the experiences and making the memories and, you know, you miss out on some of the banter and all the rest of it. Uh, so it can feel quite isolating. Um, and then there's the the thoughts that come into your head are like, well, am I going to be able to get back to where I was before? Am I going to be able to, you know, play again in some cases, like for severe injuries, some players are thinking, well, you know, am I going to get back to be on the field? So there's a fair bit to contend with. Um, and I think, I've with each injury that I've had and I probably I think I count I've had like seven or eight fairly decent surgeries um and like so that was some major major injuries and then you know other little things on top of that but um each time you get a little bit more I suppose resilient but by resilient I mean you learn strategies to deal with it you learn how best to uh, manage yourself through the disappointment not isolate yourself and actually latch on to support um you learn to be okay with the here and now of it as well um and and kind of celebrating each of the steps along the journey and and some of these things sound really cliche and really cheesy but but i've lived them out and they're generally true so like celebrating the small wins is so valuable um the worst of my injuries was probably when i fractured this case my ankle and uh it was a year out from the olympics and it was 
pretty devastating because yeah, it had been a great season. We qualified for the Olympics and you know, everyone was buzzing, but then I got injured in the last tournament of the season. Um, and it took like a good few weeks for me to probably understand the extent of it. I thought, you know, I'll, I'll be back and be fine. And then, uh, and then kind of it sort of seeped in. I was only a year out from the Olympics. And like, what if I don't, you know, what if I don't get back to the standard I'm playing at? Like, that's the dream out the window. Um, and it was pretty, it was pretty tough. And that was the first time I learned two things. One, the importance of celebrating like your little steps along the journey, because I remember I was doing, um, it was early stage rehab anyway. I was like, maybe managed to like, uh, might've just been walking for the first time, you know, cause I've been on crutches for like, uh, the best part of two months. Yeah. Um, and the physio was like, this is great. This is really good. And I obviously just wasn't showing any of that feeling. And he was like, you know, what's going on? What's up? And I was like, oh, well, what's the point in being excited about this? Like, I'll be excited when I can get back on the field and I can change direction and sprint again and do all that stuff. And fortunately, at this stage, I was being exposed to some or being offered some psych support through the team. So there was we had a team psychologist. And it was really valuable because it was like a real light bulb moment. Like, shit, I might as well enjoy each of these little successes that I get because it was just a big lesson and not locating your success in something in the future, you know, and locating the success in something in the here and now. Um, and that became a huge kind of, yeah, like part of my day-to-day psyche mantra values, whatever you want to call it. Um, but yeah, that, that, that was a, that was a big, that was a big turning point. Um, yeah. I'm sure there are lots of other lessons uh, I've had from injury. That was the other thing I was going to say, the big thing. I've heard a lot of narrative in sport. I think you hear it a lot, like about people becoming who they are because of adversity. Um, and you know, he's so resilient or he's so good because of all this bad stuff that happened previously. And I struggled with that narrative when I was kind of first getting into pro sport and thinking about wanting to be the best. Cause I was thinking, well, I've had a really privileged upbringing. I've been really lucky with my family circumstances. I've you know, been really well supported. And I thought, well, hang on, does that mean that I can't be the best? Because I haven't had, I haven't been exposed to something that's going to take me beyond, yeah. you know, the, the average. Um, and I guess when I had the, that injury, the, my bad one, I was first exposed to that experience of like, okay, well, this has been a really, I reflect on it, I've been like, this has been a really sort of bad in some ways because it didn't feel great at the time. But I've learned so much about myself. I grew hugely as a, as a human that year um and almost certainly loads of the stuff i've gone on to do since and the person i am today i can put down partly to that year and and that kind of challenge that i had um so now so when i had this recent injury um i'm in the leg brace i'll just have that context as well as well the crutches more sympathy um (laughs) i when this happened i was kind of like i was gutted and then there was a lot of uh, reasons why I was sort of justified in feeling frustrated about it but equally there was this little bit of me that knew that there was this was an opportunity as well and it's like the biggest cliche thing about finding the opportunities in your setbacks but it's just huge truth in it as well if you can access them you can allow them to kind of filter into your into your life um, and, and it's you, know, you just kind of have to be open to that as being an experience um, when you when you do get injured I think um you know people say oh you can come back stronger and i think you shouldn't shy away from the fact that you know physically 
inevitably when you get an injury there's always going to be a risk either to that part of your body or something else because you're compensating and you know make no mistake i'm probably going to have quite a few issues in older age like now because of some of the injuries i've had so in terms of coming back stronger like there's a bit of a caveat to that physically but i think mentally if you can learn from these setbacks of injury then then they can be really beneficial Man, I can definitely tell how you got into Oxford because you're a really good speaker. You yeah, covered we'll like, all our questions there in terms of strategies, psychologically, even physically. Um, so, yeah, 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 you've answered all of them. So we'll move on to, um, you mentioned the Olympics there. So what was it like um, competing at your first Olympics? What was that experience like? Oh, the first one was nuts. Um it was the, the thing that made it crazy was the build-up. So the build-up to 2016 was the first time we had a Great Britain um, rugby sevens team. So we always play as England, Scotland, Wales on the World Series normally. Um, but obviously because of the Olympics is always Great Britain, Team GB, we had to formulate a Great Britain team. So we all came together for a training camp about 12 weeks out from the game, which is a really short period of time to try and grow a team, select a team um and all the rest of it because all the other countries had been building for years mm. so uh and that that experience was epic because it was so competitive everyone was out there you know chasing a dream and, and and we talked about that and we were open about what we wanted to do and um it was new we were playing with new people it was so like engaging and challenging um it was difficult at times like to know there are no guarantees with that either um obviously select, being selected in that group to go to rio was an epic feeling um and there was certainly a bit of me at that age and that point in my life where just being uh i've never been very content with like just getting in the team and like just you know just getting on the plane was i've never felt hugely satisfied by that i always wanted to do more than that and you know do well on the pitch and win and all the rest of it um but they were certainly getting selected for Rio was a, was a huge moment and felt, I felt real pride in that. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of cool stuff as well that goes along with it, like getting all the kit and meeting the other um, Team GB athletes from other sports and stuff. Like that stuff is so cool. So as an experience, nothing to do with rugby. It was amazing. Um, and being out in Rio and in the village and everything, it was just such a crazy thing. And, and I had thought about, being an Olympian since I was probably, uh, I think it's probably the 2000 games that was, was the one I really remember watching. So I, I would have been 11, is that right? Give or take. Um, <laughs> and I really remember watching that and thinking like, oh, I'd love to be an Olympian. And it was just one of these things that I, I didn't really think about at the time because you, know, you don't think you're going to become an Olympian when you're young, do you necessarily? Uh, or certainly I didn't anyway, I didn't think, oh, that'll happen for me one day. Um, so when it did happen for me, it kind of brought back these sort of memories when I was younger. I thought, wow, how have I, like, how has this come about for me? And I just felt so fortunate to, to be there and just to be involved. And then the tournament itself, I don't know if you guys watched or if many people watched, but it was so crazy. The ga Each game was so close. I mean, sevens is often close, but this was next level. Um, and it was so up and down and we ended up in the final. We lost in the final, but um but just the whole thing was, was really really cool i mean um people say how do you feel about losing out on a gold medal um i don't want to preempt your questions here but, um, <laughs> thanks so much yeah. for that no, <laughs> <laughs> um 
um, I, yeah, yeah I, I still don't really, weirdly, I still don't know how I feel about losing out on that gold medal, to be honest. Because um, my answer probably changes every time. Like, I think my my feelings about it change as I as I get older, probably. But initially, at the time, on the day, I came off at halftime in that game. I hadn't come off really um, up until that stage. And I came off and we were getting soundly beaten by halftime. And I was by the end of the match, to be honest, I'd kind of realised, you know, long before the final whistle, we were going to lose. And I sort of made peace with it. I was kind of like, I was really, really gutted. And then I was like, actually, we've done bloody well here. Like, against quite a lot of odds, we've done really well. Um, and it was a beautiful, it was actually, I, I took a lot of, um, satisfaction from being a part of that moment for what it was for Fiji who won the gold medal because that was their first ever medal for their country and it's their biggest sport it's a huge huge sport um, rugby sevens in Fiji so being part of that was also really cool because it felt like we were you know sitting in on what was an incredibly special moment for them and their country and um, so you know that definitely made up for some of my personal disappointment of not being you know on that top spot on the podium um, yeah. Okay. It's really unique that you say that because I think any other person would like feel resentment. Like I think I'd be a bit resentful, not resentful, but very disappointed. I wouldn't really be celebrating for the team that just beat us. But I feel like that's quite unique to rugby. There's a lot of respect in the sport. So it's really interesting that you say that. Yeah, I think there is. And actually, Sevens, I think, particularly fosters that respect because we travel a lot together. We see a lot of each other. Yeah. And we always stay in the same hotels and stuff and you kind of eat in the same like dinner halls and stuff. So there is quite a strong sense of like camaraderie amongst mm. the group, um, which is pretty special. And, and that's one of the things I've always loved about the game. Um, but yeah, it was just, I mean, it may, it was in some ways we were like, we, we sort of got a bit of a drubbing in the final. And in some ways that made it easier. I think if it had been a close game, yeah. I might have had more resentment, as you say. Um, and, you know, I felt like it had been snatched from me, but I just felt like they were so justified in beating us, like in the way that they did, uh, you know, made it easier to accept in some ways. Mm. So what, what were some things that you learned from this first Olympic experience um, that you took in possibly into the next one? Uh, I, I think the main, well, <laughs> interestingly, I, when I was reflecting on this, um, this year, going into um, the second round, the, se the second Olympic Games, um, I was thinking, right, well, let's like take the learnings. Like, what do we really want to bring forward? And actually, the biggest challenge was probably not trying to reflect on the last one too closely, because a couple of things. Like, one, it was five years ago, so you know, so much has changed in the game, in the people involved, and in, in us as people who were involved then. Um, so there were, it, it was actually a bit of a, I, I had to be careful in the way I was thinking about it because it could have been very tempting and it was tempting in some ways to be like, right, well, this worked for us last time, so let's do it again. And I think that's probably a bit of an error that people can make in sport, especially yeah, well, in business and everywhere. Like, you know, the formula doesn't, you can't apply the same formula to a different set of circumstances all the time. Mm. Um, but some learnings we did take was just about, uh, I think how to bring the squad together um, when we had people coming from different nations because it was the same scenario this time around. Um, and the the biggest thing was probably more when we got out there, I think understanding what an Olympics feels like. I think there was 
three or four of us who were returning Olympians, two-time Olympians. And I think we felt quite comfortable about being in that environment and we're able to kind of share some of that with the boys, some of the challenges that come with it. Um, and maybe some of the expectation as well, which can be quite difficult first time around. Um, although that said, we actually went to Rio with very little expectation because, you know, we'd come together late. Everyone had sort of written us off to some extent. So in some ways, there's probably more expectation this time because, you know, returning as silver medalist, people expect you to go one better. Um, and that's what we, we, we talked about that as well. We talked about that openly, like in the in the press and with the public, we talked about wanting to go one better and everything. So you create potential pressure for yourself in that respect. Um, yeah, it, it, this was a very different um, atmosphere going into that because the context of it, going in post-COVID particularly, we went in, in uh, everyone involved had essentially been through the same set of circumstances in the build-up. So last summer, essentially everyone lost their, lost their job. So everyone, all the teams got shut down. No one was, um, very few people were kept on contract. Um, didn't have anywhere to train, didn't have anyone to train with. A lot of uncertainty. No one knew how we were going to map out to get to, to Tokyo. Um, and yet everyone was still incredibly passionate about this, you know, push to go to the Olympics and to do well. Um, and it was, it was pretty like frustrating time for everyone. I think we probably lent into that quite a lot in, in a positive way, in the way we formed the group this time around. Everyone had a lot of respect for each other as a result of kind of, well, just sticking with it, to be honest. Like, you know, lads have been training in their bloody gardens, you know, lifting plant pots for weights, you know, throughout the pandemic and going and running by themselves in the park just to stay fit. And, you know, it's not a hardship in the grand scheme of the pandemic and everything that's gone on. But in the context of the sport, it was a lot harder than what we were used to. Um, and the fact that, you know, that the group that formed had kind of stuck with it through the, through the tough time meant that there was a really deep respect for everyone, um, which meant for a very, you know, made for a really powerful group, really strong group. Um, but it also probably meant that um, there was more on the line for people because they had, you know, stuck with this thing, even when it was probably easier to walk away. And so when it came around to selection day, um, it was pretty heavy. It was a lot on the line for people. Um, yeah and in terms of like the environment at the olympics how different was that from rio i can imagine with the restrictions did you feel like you made the most of it or was it kind of ruined we actually went to a conference already uh, and me to, to liverpool and um two coaches came to talk about their experiences with their judoka uh, and how it was and it seemed like it was a pretty negative experience for them a lot of stress um so did you kind of find that as well or not so much? Well, do you know what? I can totally understand why they would have had that experience. And I reckon, I, hope, I mean, this is just me having a, having a guess, but I reckon loads of athletes probably would have felt like that. <laughs> I, I felt like the Olympic experience, let's, let's talk about the experience up to the tournament because the tournament kind of stands by itself and there's, there's other things with that we can talk about, but the olympic experience just generally I, I still found really rewarding i loved it um and it was different you know like um you, you had to do COVID tests all the time you couldn't go and walk we didn't walk around the city once you know you mm. can go and explore you couldn't go and watch other sports um but i was really pleasantly surprised i think and there's, there's a couple of reasons for it where we'd been training as a squad up in loughborough we'd been really strict with the with the COVID regulations 
even when things were relaxing elsewhere, we'd stayed quite strict with it. And there was a lot of backlash, like, you know, myself included, like, why the hell, like, why are we still, you know, social distancing? Why are we still wearing masks everywhere? Like no one else is doing it. Um, and p- part of the reason that they gave at the time was, well, one, we couldn't afford to have a COVID case because of the destruction, but also we were very open to the fact that like, let's make it harder for ourselves here so that when we get out there, you know, it won't seem so bad. Like whatever we're hit with, we'll be able to manage. And that was certainly, that certainly played out um, because I was really pleasantly surprised. Was certainly in the village, the freedom we had was amazing. Everyone was wearing masks, but there was no social distancing in the dinner hall. It was just like a free for all. You could go wherever you wanted in the village um, and even in the prep camp. So before we moved into the village, we stayed in the Team GB prep camp, which is where they, they take on um, a facility. Uh, in this case, they had a hotel in Yokohama that they basically took over the whole hotel just for Team GB athletes. So you get to mix with the other athletes. And that was super cool because that's a massive part of the experience, I think, is, you know, you're there you're eating alongside the boxers or, you know, the sprinters, um, you know, the cyclists are out on the balcony doing their what bikes, training or whatever, or spinning out. Um, and that kind of stuff is so cool because you get exposed to just something that's different and, um, and, out, and, and it gives you the sense of being part of something that's bigger than just your sport. You know, the World Series we go on with sevens is amazing, but it's, it's all about sevens. Um, whereas you go to an Olympic Games and even to some extent the Commonwealth Games and you realise that you're part of a bigger team with, with other people that have got other aspirations and it, it's just really powerful. Um, so I was really pleasantly surprised when we got out there, but I think that's because we, we prepared for it um, in the sense of being stricter before we went out. But we also spoke about it. We were like, we, we did the thing called a pre-mortem, which I, I think um, often teams do when they're going into big tournaments. And you basically get down on paper everything you think could possibly go wrong, everything you think could derail you. Mm. And some of the things you can solve so uh, and find practical solutions to. But really, the main point of it is you can understand things that aren't in your control and acknowledge them. And if necessary, find a kind of mental strategy so that when it does come up, you, you, you've stored it in your computer and you can kind of, um, you know, get yourself back to where you need to be in order to either perform or train or just get up and do what you need to do that day, whatever it is. Mm. It's funny that you say that because uh, the judoka, I think that the, um, the coaching team did everything possible to make it much easier for her at the, um, uh, like before the Olympics. So she had her own um, gym where she could train by herself, which her other teammates probably didn't. So it's almost like you said, like make it harder for yourself. So then it's more easier afterwards. And yeah, I mean, think it's the same as like, around. Yeah. yeah it's the same as like physical training like we in in a rugby session we'd have at least one or two sessions a week where you try and push you know we'll be pushing and pushing heart rate through the roof you know push to a point of fatigue that you're probably not really going to get to in a game very often but if you can train at that high level you're then going to find it easier when it comes to the games um but yeah i think the other thing i should say as well is that being in a team sport is really beneficial and i'm very grateful that i sort of fell into a, or fell in love with a team sport um because when you go away uh you know it's the same in tokyo even if we're isolated we're isolated as a as a 12 you know plus the staff so like there's a group of like whatever we are 16 or so um so you've always got people and you know i'm rooming with one of the other boys and whereas some of the individual athletes must be a lot harder because you know they might be rooming by themselves or training by themselves all the time um very difficult to kind of share some of your worries some of your thoughts difficult to find that switch off and just have a laugh with someone um find a distraction or whatever so i think 
we benefited from the, the team sport aspect for sure. Mm-hmm. Just going back to that, making things like as hard as possible for yourself. Um, so, so you're prepared in the future. Uh, I know that a lot of athletes do that cold exposure thing. So, you know, you're more comfortable being uncomfortable. Um, and obviously you mentioned that you do that as well. So, so it's interesting that you say that. Uh, yeah. So I don't so, know if I do the code for that reason necessarily. Yeah, yeah, I would it, say it could be like an implication of it. You know I mean? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. In some ways, I feel like the cold thing for me is, is it a change? Yeah, maybe it is. Maybe it's, it might be a way of satisfying my uh, learned and partly innate need for, uh, like, I don't know, challenge or, or being outside of my comfort zone. Um, I certainly think, yeah, maybe you're right there. I know that Anthony Joshua does it um, every morning. He has a cold shower for, for that reason, you know, when he's out there in the ring and he gets rocked, you know. He, he mentioned it in an interview. I remember him saying that's why I brought it up. Yeah, um, that's interesting though because I don't think, my, I can't imagine a, a, the challenge of getting to a cold shower in the morning is anything like being smashed in the face and then having to carry on, but. <laughs> yeah, Jesus. I know, I know, I know. Um, but no, in terms of the, the outcome then of Tokyo 2020, um, how did how did you feel about that? What were your thoughts about the games? Uh, what are your reflections? Yeah, so you know, as I mentioned earlier, in Rio, if you're going to compare the two, um, in Rio we had this really up and down tournament, but we came out on the right side of all, all those results, I guess, until the final one, um, and it was just really exciting. This this one, obviously, there was a slight edge taking off it because there were no crowds in this time. So there was that, but there was still massive buzz. And day one was it was brilliant and it went really well. But on a personal note, I was carrying a bit of an injury going into it, and which got worse uh, in the first game and then again the second game. And that, uh, you know, invariably becomes a bit of a distraction because, you, you know, I'm coming off after the game, trying to find a solution so that I can be, you know, feeling good for the next game. And so you that probably if to be honest did detract from it a little bit in terms of a tournament um and then having had that sort of experience and then get injured properly in the quarterfinal uh to take no further part was quite was was tough um I mean it was tough at the time but I think as well it has meant that I don't you know if someone's like which are your favorite tournaments tournaments isolated I wouldn't say Tokyo would be anywhere near because Whenever you get injured mid-tournament, it's never fun anyway because you feel like you're not taking part in it anymore. Uh, you're not doing what you're there to do. Uh, and that's quite challenging, especially in Olympic Games when, you know, that's, it's, well, what I thought was going to be once in a lifetime. It happened to me twice in a lifetime, twice in a lifetime opportunity. Um, but one, and obviously I was thinking, probably never going to get this again. Um, never say never. Paris 2024 is not that far away. But, yeah, it's close. You know, it's, it's not far off, but um, you know, and, and it was. It's just, it's just, it's hard when that happens, and that was just my kind of personal journey through it. Living it with the team, then, like layering on top of that, the team experience where we um, scraped through in the quarterfinal, like unbelievable result. You know, everyone on top of the world thinking, "Wow, we scraped through there!" Like we were twenty-one nil down, came back to win it. It was just epic, like one of the great games, you know, and I was watching most of it because I got injured in the first 30 seconds. So I was watching most of it from the sideline. Um, but it was just it was brilliant. And it was kind of like, we're into the semis here, like we're on track. Um, and then losing in the semi-final was, was pretty brutal. Um, and watching that happen 
I mean, I'm not great at watching from the sideline anyway. I've always rather be playing than watching. Um, and it was it was tough, just partly feeling like you have no, you can't have any impact on it. Uh, it's really frustrating as well. Like I was trying to, I had, had the headset on like with the, the mic and the radio so I could communicate with the other coaches and stuff. So try and at least, you know, share some insight and input and, and help. And, and even if so, like if needed, speak to speak to the boys because, you know, obviously they were used to me leading the team as well. So for me not to be involved at all is quite a big shift potentially because invariably, whether they liked it or not, there was quite a lot of my voice <laughs> generally yeah, like yeah. over the course of a tournament. And you take that away and suddenly it's quite a big shift. And I'm not saying for a minute that the boys couldn't manage without me. And that, But it is just a shift. And sometimes a big shift isn't useful in the middle of a tournament. Um, but I, I was made to sit in the stands basically for the semi-final, which was frustrating because there were rules about how many players you're allowed, you know, who aren't playing the touchline and stuff like that. So, you know, sitting up in the stands, feeling like I was very distanced from something that I wanted to be a part of, had worked really hard to be a part of, um, and I would have, I would have still felt pretty rubbish, even if they'd won that game, the lads had won that game, but I would have felt a hell of a lot better than I did seeing as we lost. Um, and then it was, it was, it took a quite a lot of energy from me after that game, knowing that we had the bronze medal match to get up for, I was very consciously like parked everything I was feeling in order, cause I knew how the boys would be feeling as well. And I was like, this is, you know, I'm not going to have to play in the next game. I'm not playing. So I just need to use it, all the energy I've got to try and help lift the spirits a bit um, and do what needs to be done, all the stuff we already talked about. Mm. Um, and, you know, a lot of guys did a very good job of that, um, but just, you know, it wasn't to be for us in the bronze medal match. So again, watching that from a distance was pretty brutal, uh, to be honest. And I think, you know, I don't know how I would have felt coming back if we'd won a bronze medal, um, but there's certainly... You know, coming home with something rather than nothing is probably better, isn't it? Um, even though it's, it, what we went for was gold, so we'd already lost that. And I think maybe that disappointment was probably a bit too much for the group looking back. But um, still, I think, you know, it's a bit like saying uh, to a kid, like, you can have a bag of sweets and then suddenly snatching that away and then crying. But, like, you give them, like, a couple of sweets, they're probably going to feel better about it. And I think it's probably that sort of scenario for us. Um, and we we never got those couple of tweets. <laughs> good yeah. analogy there. Good analogy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you talked about obviously that you still had that input and um, that's like the role of a leader, really. Um, and it was similar to uh, it reminded me of when Cristiano Ronaldo got injured in the Euros final, and you know you saw him and he was basically coaching on the side. He basically took over the manager's role <laughs> and become the coach. Um, I'm just interested to know. Obviously, you're captain, so. What do you feel makes a successful rugby sevens captain? Um, that's a good, yeah, I'll, I'll come on to that just quickly on the Ronaldo thing. I think it's a really interesting thing that I've heard as well, and I'd be interested for your guys' thoughts. I think in football, um, well, I don't know. I'll ask you guys, but in rugby, in the the environments I've been involved in, particularly in recent times, there's been a big emphasis on actually the players trying to lead stuff, and to the point at which actually the boundary between the coach and the players in terms of, you know, the tactics and, you know, even what happens in training is kind of blurred a little bit. Um, obviously there are certain things that, you know, that's the coach's job and that's the player's job. But um, in terms of ownership, I think people, I think successful 
teams, a lot of the ownership is held by the players because ultimately you're delivering on the pitch. So you empower the players by giving them ownership. And you also, from a practical sense, you know, the developing understanding and all the rest of it by, by leading it. Mm. Um, so we have tried to do that quite a lot. And, um, but it, interestingly, it takes a very courageous coach to do that because yeah. you're relinquishing the control, essentially. Um, I think, just to add on to that before you move on, um, that's something I've done uh, some of my coaching badges in England and that's something we really drill into the kids is that giving them that ownership during training sessions but on more of an elite level um, giving that ownership to the players especially during training they're able to then problem solve on the pitch themselves you know I think Frank Lampard spoke about that a lot when he was Chelsea manager he, he gave a lot of ownership to the players and gave them that responsibility to be able to problem solve on the pitch where he really can't have that impact as much so it's interesting yeah. you say that. A very good point. We well, still see it in, in rugby life. I've been watching some 15s games recently and like, you know, teams get awarded a penalty, for example, and they're kind of looking to the sideline. And I've done it. You know, I've done it before as well. You're looking to the sideline for guidance and like, what's the coach telling me to do? Like, should I go kick to goal or should we go to touch or what should we do? And like, <clears throat> that always just makes my heart sink a little bit because really, the, you know, and as I say, I've done it. So I'm not criticising anyone. But really the game is about um the game is on a bigger in a bigger perspective it's just an opportunity to learn about yourself and have cool experiences right so you're going to learn more about yourself and you're going to have a better experience win or lose right or wrong with your decision if you take that decision on um so i think if i was a coach uh, if in uh, i'll try and stick by this if i ever go into coaching and someone looks at me from from the field and ask asking a question you know, I've, I hopefully I'll pick the right moments to be like, just keep my mouth shut and let them make the call. Um, I don't know. It's difficult though, because when there's a lot on the line, when it's big money sport, when there's medals on the line, trophies, you know, that's not necessarily the time for development. I've, I don't know. We could talk about this side of it uh, like all day, but um, it's really, it's a really interesting thing. Like, and it'd be interesting to know the role, how the role of a coach is shifting, I think at the moment. Um, yeah um, but in terms of in terms of the captaincy um, what makes a good rugby sevens captain look I mean it it depends I'll answer this one the best the best captains will lead in a way that fits with who they are as people so that's what I'd say is number one um, your ability to access what you think is important your own values and live those out with the group, share those and be yourself authentically is all stuff that is going to lead you to be a, a really good leader, I think. Um, for me, what that looked like was was a lot of compassion for, uh, and a genuine care for people and their experiences and how they went. Um, I think that was probably what I channeled most um, and a real desire for, for the group to do things that were going to be uh, fulfilling. Um, I had a, a really interesting journey with like learning how that looks in practice because it's all very well sitting here saying it theoretically, but actually how does that look in your everyday conversations with players and, you know, how does it look in a team meeting when you've got a, you know, how, how does it look when you're criticizing people? How does it look when you're praising people? Um, and the beauty of it is it looks differently with this person to this person, to this group, to this group. Um, and I think learning how to, to be agile and adaptable as a leader um, it is really important. 
um, like as, as a great phrase, uh, like emotional agility, um, which can't remember the lady that does a really good talk on that or maybe a book as well. Yeah. Anyway, you guys can research that. <laughs> <laughs> I feel bad for not knowing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but, but, but that's kind of what it's about. So um, I think I've tried to cultivate a leadership style that allows me to be, um, to deliver what the people in the team need, individuals or the group, whilst also being myself and being authentic. Now, um, sometimes the, me doing the best for the group means that I'm going to experience my emotions, but maybe not share them with the group. All right? And I still see that as being authentic because I'm not denying myself the experience and I'm still living that for myself, but I'm just choosing not to share it because I don't think it's going to be very useful for other people. Um, but that's quite, uh, I don't think I would have been able to do that when I was first made captain at 23 or whatever, because mm. she wasn't, I just didn't have the capacity in my mind to do that. So mm. um, it's something that kind of comes with age. And I think leadership, captaincy in sport is so interesting because you're asking people if you, the way to be a good leader, uh, a lot of the, I think the components of being a good leader, are very hard to do when you're in your early twenties or whatever, because mostly because your brain hasn't finished developing. Um, so you don't necessarily have the capacity to, um, you know, manage this kind of emotional to and fro and, have the different perspectives that you need to in order to be to be a really good leader. You have that book old, don't you, with the with the cap with the captains. I don't yeah. know. Last time I it. last time I had it to hand, but uh, I, don't, I don't think I have it to hand rather. Oh, what is it? And I, I, I'm still learning. That's the other thing, actually. Is like as a, all good leaders, I think they've got the humility to understand that it is a constant journey. Um, it's difficult though because you want to. The crux of the challenge for me was trying to appear like. To the group that I was um, worthy of, of their respect, I suppose. And you want to be someone who has the answers, who can, you know, people can lean on, people can be like, you know, he's got it all figured out. And I wanted to be that person. The reality is, like, obviously I didn't, because no one has it all figured out. No one's perfect all the time. Um, and I probably didn't, well, I said definitely didn't in the early days um, express some, enough of the honest. Um, failures probably or some of the vulnerability that I was experiencing um, which in hindsight I think I, I, I just didn't realize that I could do that and still continue to be a respected leader with the group um, and, and there's also something I think as a young leader you try and cherry pick from like things you've seen things you've read other people's behaviors which is fine um, to a point it's fine if you can keep them in your armory and then you know project them through your own window but it's not fine if you're just trying to emulate other people and, and mimic behaviors um like i remember thinking about uh like martin johnson obviously because i grew up in the kind of 2003 world cup was like a big moment in rugby and i was like that's awesome and martin johnson's captain and um obviously quite a big name in rugby a very different type of I've never met him, but a very different type of person, I think, from me, and probably a very different type of leader. But I remember everyone was talking about how good he was as a captain. So I was like, right, well, I should probably do a bit of what he does, which was like, well, I don't know, I never really saw him smile on the pitch. And yeah. <laughs> people were like, oh, you know, I'd run through walls for him. And I think he used to like shout at people quite a lot. And I was like, I need to do more of that. Um, and it just, you know, didn't come naturally to me. And it actually leads to a real tension that means you, you don't really do anything well. You don't do your strengths particularly well and you, you don't actually develop in other areas. Um, so that was an interesting kind of experience to have. 
Yeah. Do you think the role of captain has evolved though? Because that might be like a very old school way of being a captain, but now maybe because we're talking, you know, in in the world, we're talking more about our feelings, mental health, etc. Do you think that's kind of helped the role of the captain evolve a bit? Yeah, I should probably caveat and just say I'm not criticizing Martin Johnson. Like, oh no, of course. But he was just like he had his way, and I yeah. think what I saw was not useful for me. Yeah, I think you're right. I think in some ways, um, yeah, I think people are more aware of. Well, I think a lot of it's down to like masculinity as well. Like obviously, rugby, men's rugby, traditionally very masculine environment in an old school way, often not a very healthy way. Certainly, when it comes to sharing vulnerability, being honest people's mental health was not something that people understood very well, let alone, you know, respected or worked on. So um, I think I feel very positive about that those sorts of shifts in the, in a lot of male, particularly male environments and in sport. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think it probably is. I think the uh, likelihood that captains are just going to like shout and scream at people now, uh, is very low I think there's there's also been a bit of an awakening about the skill involved that it's 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 a skill about communicating um, it's a skill to understand other people it's not just being like the, the loudest in the room or you know the most powerful obviously in the room um, I don't know where that shift really come from I, I guess I'm trying to think of, of kind of I don't know if you guys can think of any like popular or famous um you know leaders that have demonstrated those sorts of behaviors i mean actually one that stands out for me is justinda Ardern, the new zealand prime minister she i mean it's outside of sport but she yeah. has talked a lot about compassion and and is very understanding and i think she reflects that in some of her policy decisions and like that. and um i think she's been really progressive um mm. there are other ones in sport like that i look up to like uh um, Kate Richardson Walsh, who's the hockey captain for the ladies, and they won gold in Rio. Um, she's brilliant the way she understands leadership and, and building culture. So, you know, there are probably a few people out there who have done it really well recent times. That book that we, we were talking about is called uh, Captain Class. And it got recommended to me by um, a coach that we had on the podcast, Stephen Kerber, and he's at uh, Leicester. Um, he coaches in the under-18s, and it's about the great captains of the world. So, like, you're Carlos Puyol, Tim Duncan in the NBA for the Spurs, and there's, like, several others, and it's about the traits that they had. I think that when you mentioned humility, I feel like that really needs to be emphasised because I feel like that's a really key attribute. And I think it's also a key attribute in coaches as well, something that I wish I had when I was going through my coaching experience because I think it really led me down not liking coaching because I felt like I should have it all together I, sh I should be an expert on the game of football and really I wasn't but because I wasn't I didn't have confidence in delivering drills like I wish I would so it's definitely a really good point and I, th I feel like it should be emphasized humility yeah I think you've explained it really well there like yeah bang on and I think that interestingly I, I thought about this when you're reading out the list of people in that book there are some characteristics that um, that maybe aren't that skillful. So we've talked a lot about like, you know, the kind of deeper level of leadership, you know, how you communicate, how you um, like maintain the appropriate perspective and, and everything else and deal with people on an emotional level. But um, I think in sport as well, it's really important to have some fundamental behaviours like, you know, having really good effort levels. And I know that should 
people think that should be a given in, in especially in professional sport and generally it's a very high st standard but you still get a bit of a sliding scale and i think the lead really good leaders are still ones that that really work incredibly hard and are, and are very dedicated in terms of putting time into it um and some of the things that actually i've made life difficult for me like in terms of probably you know trying too hard sometimes or maybe putting too many hours in probably did benefit me in terms of being a good leader because i think in some ways uh people probably sort of found comfort or, or respect it in those in that sort of behavior um but yeah there's some sort of fundamentals aren't there you know like never say never uh backing down from like the challenge as well on the on the field or on the court or whatever i think are other attributes that are probably fundamental as well yeah i think one that poyol shown as well specifically him i've seen videos of him where you know his teammates are taking the piss a little bit um you know celebrating in front of like the opposition and mm. that and he, he'll just grab them straight back in and, and that's showing the right values that he wants the team to abide by i feel like that's really important as well so you, you sort of maintain that culture um and, and players don't get too ahead of themselves i think uh, yeah that's really yeah. important absolutely there's a great clip as well it might be in the same sort of montage i think one of the one of his fellow players gets hit by something yeah. that's thrown from the stands and goes down like holding his head and yeah. it's a corner about to defend a corner and pull just like pulls him up like yeah, come on yeah. <laughs> throws the lighter whatever it was back off the field and like yeah. come on we're carrying on here yeah. in that and same I, montage i think he he got hit as well in in the el Clasico, and you know the guy got sent off and then his teammates come to back him and he was like nah like, don't worry about it come on let's just get back on with the game yeah like that yeah. guy he he shows a lot of uh good strength that's why i rate him so much yeah. um yeah bit of a legend though but that's it. It's just like values, though, isn't it? Like, I think if you can, you know, rather than starting out, and I guess I don't, I don't know who the audience is for whoever's listening to this, but if I could speak to my younger self or younger leaders, rather than thinking about like, all right, how do I need to be, uh, you know, outwardly, what do I need? If I was watching myself, I think, what do I need to look at? What do I need to be saying? Whatever. How do I need to appear to everyone? The better starting point is actually with, with the values and actually this, this speaks to a lot of things in life, but because the someone like Puyol, I assume, has you know very clear idea of what his values are when it comes to his sport, and that just you know he doesn't have to reach for them; they're right there. When in his behaviours, when something happens, like he doesn't have to process it or think; it's just there. Um, and I think that's a good starting point for anyone trying to develop themselves as a leader. It's like really understand what your values are and go through the process of understanding why like why you want to do it and why you actually why you want to lead as well because often people probably go into leadership with slightly uh unhelpful intentions maybe as well yeah or they're forced into it that can happen yeah. in that same montage like just to put it in there <laughs> there's another there's a clip where he like saves a goal with the chest that's that's i'll always remember that that's some montage that's some montage yeah, it's a good it montage is. <laughs> Okay, um, so moving on, what are your current goals and ambitions now in rugby sevens and possibly in, in, in general in general life? Uh, what, what are your future plans and ambitions? Uh, it's probably going to be a short answer to this one. Um, I think I've done my best in the right now to kind of bring my thinking short term anyway to try and get myself fit. Um, I just, you know, I can't do anything until I'm back training. So uh yeah just trying to take really i'm taking it each week at a time at the moment because i think to look too much into the future at the moment proved quite unhelpful for me um 
playing wise, I'm not entirely sure what the next bit, of, what the sort of next year or two holds. Um, 32 now, so you know, rugby careers don't last forever. But um, excited to be carrying on playing anyway. So not sure is the answer a little bit. There's I've, I've, invariably at this stage, you have to have half an eye on what comes next. Um, so I'm not being totally ignorant to that, you know, for the last few years. I'm, and we get told this a lot in rugby, like someone will nudge you and be like, have you thought about life after rugby? Because it's the last forever. And you're like, yeah, yeah, no, I will, I will. And then all of a sudden you get towards the end of your career and like, I've got no idea what I'm going to do. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of scary. And, and you know, invariably when I do finally hang up the boots, because in all honesty, I considered doing it after Tokyo. Um I didn't make any rash decisions because I wasn't in a great headspace coming back for a couple of weeks. You know, I was pretty down. So um, I decided it wasn't the time to make big life decisions. But, um, you know, I contemplated it. Uh, and I actually contemplated it last year during the pandemic when when everything got cut. And I was like, oh, maybe this is the universe telling me to stop. Um, mm. But the fact that I contemplated it and then decided to carry on certainly helped because it, it, I'd reaffirmed that I really wanted to play and I love the sport and I was willing to do what I needed to do in order to carry on and that's where I'm at now with this rehab like it's not going to be an easy rehab and going to be out for a while but the fact that I know that I want to carry on playing and doing something I love is going to carry me through that so it's a good process to go through um but I'm not I'm not really closer in terms of working out what my next uh what my next line of work is going to be. I mean, look, the stuff we're talking about now, guys, is stuff that really, you know, presses my buttons and I find really interesting. And the kind of leadership and the psychology of performance um, and, and well-being as well, it's, it's all stuff that I find fascinating. And um, it's certainly an area I'd like to go into um, in terms of, I just haven't quite worked out how it becomes a job. Um, and, you know, I've got to pay the bills somehow. So, uh i just got to figure a few things out i mean i'd like to stay in the game as well to some extent like i love the game of sevens uh obviously spent you know 10 years doing it almost 10 years doing it professionally so um it'd be nice to, to keep a uh, a finger in the sevens pie somehow whether that's doing you know the tv stuff or or maybe some coaching i'm not sure yeah that's what i was going to say well you mentioned coaching you're educated to like a really high level so I'm sure it won't be that much of a of a crisis when you do finish. So no, yeah, I uh, we wish you all the best when it, when it does finish. But um, thanks, mate. Enjoy that. I need the vote of confidence. Anyway, when it comes around, I'll give you a call and you can just reassure me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll do it again. We'll do a part two. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Sounds no, good. In terms of all our questions, they're all the questions we had for you. But we um we always ask our followers on social media if they've got any questions for you. And this is just sort of the segment where. We reveal them off one for one and uh, just get your insight into their questions. So. Nice. The first one is, uh, what is the favourite place you have competed? Um, my favourite stop probably on the World Series is probably Vancouver in Canada. Um, we won there in 2017. So good memories from that. And it's just a really cool city. Love going there in this, with the snow. Um, and we play in an indoor arena as well. It's the only indoor stadium we play in. So it's, it's pretty awesome experience. So I'll go for that. Yeah, me and John love Canada. Yeah, I've been I've been once. Oh, it's such a good place. I've never I love it's it. amazing country. I, isn't I it? need yeah. to go. I need to go. Yeah. Um. So the second question was, what is the most challenging thing about rugby sevens? I know we've mentioned a few, but if you had to pick one, what would it be? Uh, in terms of just getting into like you know we're not talking about the top level in the top one percent 
it's just the physical demands you know that the the like as i say your heart rate's up at like 190 plus for like a lot of the game you're having to run change direction accelerate decelerate hit people get tackled get up off the deck and it's just like you just want it to stop like mm. you constantly in the, it's so often in this place where you just want it to stop and then the whistle will go and you'll have you'll be like oh 30 seconds rest or whatever it is and then the 30 seconds will be over like that and you yeah. you just you're like no no, no 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 i need more time i need more time <laughs> um but you've just got to push through and and that's the that is a tough thing yeah okay uh, and then the final one is um, how much do you value sports psychology and why? Uh, hugely. Um, I think it's still a really underrated aspect of professional sport. I think it's something that we should factor into youth development much more um, and, and not even in sport, but just uh, in general in terms of education. And um, I mean that in terms of like a well-being piece as well as a performance piece. But I, I was fortunate that my sports psychology experience uh was much bigger than just learning how to be a better rugby player um it was hugely fundamental in terms of me developing as a person understanding the way my mind works and all the rest of it so yeah massive advocate for it i think i was particularly benefit i was particularly lucky that i benefited from a really good sports psych as well um and she was you know really really brilliant and one of the best in the business so um yeah, I was particularly lucky, but I, I would anyone who has exposure to it, like buy in, learn about it. Um, I think it's really, really valuable. Yeah, that's something we're really trying to um, explain on this podcast is that you know if you have a bad bad experience with um, a sports psych, it's not necessarily going to be for every experience you have with a sports psych. I think try a few different ones and try and find the one that works for you because everyone has a different philosophy in sports psychology when we do consult. So, you know, you might find a, a philosophy that suits you better than, than another one. So it's interesting. Well, the, yeah, 100%. And the philosophy is one thing, but also just like the rapport you have with someone, yeah. you know, it just doesn't always click in the way that you need it to in order to operate on that sort of level in, in that relationship. You know, if you, have a, if you have a coach or something who you don't really click with, you can probably just about, you can get by because... Yeah. It's, it's not quite as personal relationship necessarily. It doesn't necessarily have to be. Whereas I think in a psychology, a psychologist athlete relationship, there needs to be a degree of um, just compatibility, I suppose, in order for it to work. Yeah, definitely. 100%. That's something that me and John are really focusing on, um, you know, trying to look approachable, I suppose, uh, through this podcast. Uh, we hope we do anyway. And uh, <laughs> I think the fundamental to that is the rapport uh, you build during that sports like relationship. So, so it's, it's interesting, again, that you say that. But in terms of all the questions that we had for you, they were all the questions we had for you. So thanks so much for uh, sharing some time with us um, and talking through that. You're definitely really well-spoken. You provided so much value to our listeners. We have a lot of athletes and coaches who listen to our podcast. So they're definitely going to be able to take a lot away from that. Um, so thanks so much for sharing it with us. No worries at all. No, thanks for inviting me on, guys. Really interesting just to have these chats. Great questions. Um, yeah, hopefully it's useful for someone. I was think that's uh, it's quite a good thing to be guided by, that even if what you do helps just one person, then it's probably worthwhile. So good work. Keep it going. Thank you. Um, this is the moment where I just, um, if you want to shout anything out, uh, all your socials and that will be in the description of the YouTube video. But if there's anything else you want to say? You got any 
projects I'm, or future plans that you want to shout out nah, for now for now i won't occupy occupy people's uh ears any, any longer they've probably heard enough of me yeah <laughs> by the uh, way i really like your your top are you sponsored by adidas yeah yeah i'm lucky i get i do get i'm very lucky i get some free stuff which is nice yeah it's for wording for us (laughs) (laughs) yeah you get get the pod sponsored by adidas yeah three stripes on the pod all right (laughs) well uh no we hope you enjoyed this episode if you could please share this with your friends or someone you feel would benefit from it most importantly like subscribe comment down below any questions or guess you'd like us to get on in the future other than that, go follow us on Twitter, Instagram, links will be in the description of the YouTube video, or find us at Master in the Mind podcast on YouTube. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in the next one.